Well, here we are today with Tony and Dee. Thank you. Talking about, we start every session with that, don't we? There's Deidre and Dee thing. Have well, it depends on where you're at, whether you say Dee or Deidre. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> so those people that listen to us must be really tired of us. But talking at least about our no, I have a d- another name. I'm not just Dee. That's right. Could call you Evelyn. Yeah, that'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> Did I ever tell you, though, that when I found out the spelling, I never liked my middle name. So when I was in foster care, weirdly, two things happened. One was that I had a different birthday. When, yeah. I, when I became yeah. an adult, I found out I wasn't born on the 5th of April in 1956. I was born on the 8th of March in 1956. How and disappointing it would have been to have found out it was even the wrong year. Would have been if it would have been wrong year as well, yeah. it depends if it was up or down and what time of life I was at, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and the other weird thing was that I grew up with the spelling of Evelyn, E-V-E-L-Y-N, which I never liked. But when I got my birth certificate and discovered it was E-V-A-L-I-N, suddenly I was happy. Oh, really? <laughs> so that's, I didn't know that but, either. But, I never knew that. But how weird is that that they didn't take care with those details? Yeah, bizarre, isn't it? And that you had to find out at a... So didn't anybody care? I get not enough, clearly. No, yeah, no. so I found that out, out through going through birth, deaths and marriages. All oh, right, okay. Go for birth, deaths and marriages. Somebody kept the details. Well, glad that somebody did. Did it make much of a difference? Oh, it did. It did, absolutely. Because with my birth date, I was into the, you know, the stars and star signs and everything. And I'd been reading up on, apparently I was an Aries if I'd been born in April. And believe me, I was not an Aries. So when I found out as a Pisces, I went, yeah, that makes complete sense to me. So All right. So you had to redefine yourself based on a new change of birth date. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So mm. yes, I guess so. And as I said, I just preferred the spelling of my second name. Not that you see that very often anyway. There you go. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. We, we find out new things that I didn't even know during our conversation. Which is so when that's weird that's too. Bizarre. That's bizarre. What else do you need to tell me that you haven't told me before? Next week. Over the last 30 years, there's obviously a lot I don't know. So a lot happened in politics this week. So Again. I guess we're going to have a conversation about some of that. And you wanted to start with the apology. There was an apology in Parliament this week. Now, I was a little bit confused when I turned the apology on because my understanding was that it was only going to be the Speaker in the House of Reps and the Speaker in the Senate who were going to deliver apologies. And I knew that there was some consternation that the women affected, like Brittany Higgins, would not be able to attend that apology either. So it was going to be this apology to these women and other people but the women involved weren't going to be there particularly, and significantly Brittany Higgins, because it was her talking about what happened to her that started mm. all of this conversation and Kate Jenkins' report and everything. So I was a little bit surprised when I saw Scott Morrison delivering the apology and the women in the chambers. And I found out later on that Scott Morrison had decided he should make a statement of apology because he'd found out that Anthony Albanese wanted to and he didn't want to be upstage. So he did deliver an apology. And I also found out that it was one of the independent women who organised for for some women to be in the gallery, including Brittany Higgins. One of the things that disturbed me, which I haven't seen any other commentators talking about, which disturbed me about... One section of Morrison's apology was that he apologised directly to 
Brittany Higgins turned and faced her, which was great, and said, I'm, I'm very sorry. With a great deal of sincerity, I noticed. The man had, as much as he can muster. The man had tears streaming <laughs> down his face. As much as the man can muster. But then he said, but I'm also, or something like, so I'm paraphrasing, but I'm also sorry. He did a but. He did a but. Now, we all know that a but kind of cancels out whatever goes before. He then turned again to Brittany Higgins said, you know, it was Brittany Higgins who who raised all of these issues and it was because of her, so we did acknowledge that. But this weird but, like, I apologise to, so paraphrasing, I apologise to Brittany Higgins, but I also apologise to everybody else, almost like it diminished, I thought. Yeah, I agree. And he, all he needed to do was switch out the but for an and mm. and be a bit more thoughtful about that. But he can't be thoughtful to save his life, I don't think. He is probably one of those people who knows, who says, I'm not a racist, but... Yeah. I'm yeah, not a yeah. sexist, <coughs> but... Yeah, yeah, I'm not a misogynist, but... I'm not transphobic, you know. but... Yeah, yeah, but he's... Uh, so there's a little bit of that conversation in, on uh, the ins- Insiders today, the ABC Insiders. Worth having a look at. I thought it was a really good episode. And uh, <coughs> they talked about, you know, is he really... Is he... So it was the woman from The Guardian. What's her name, Samantha? Was it Samantha? No, that's Catherine Murphy from The Guardian. No, Guardian, no, it wasn't Catherine it? Murphy. It was... Lenore the, Taylor. I've forgotten the woman. She's fabulous. Anyway, she made the point that she doesn't think he's a misogynist. Well, that could be argued. But not Samantha. <coughs> you're not talking about Samantha Maiden. Uh, I'm, I don't know. Okay. I can't remember, actually. All right. But... Um, he, uh, she did make the fact that she didn't think he was misogynist, but <coughs> she did think that he expects women to do everything for him. So he, he sort of there's this put down notion around women generally that uh, women are kind of beneath him. I guess and that's kind of misogynist. Yeah, I kind of wondered about what she said, and perhaps I'm being unfair to her and not clarifying it. But she did make the he's point. So he's though, certainly sexist. Sexist would probably be better. Might yes, be better. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And that hence the reason why Jen, you made the point the other day actually that Jen, there's no evidence that Jen actually does anything. No, well, there is, isn't. Who knows? And it's unfair of me probably to raise the issue, but it seems to me that other prime ministers' partners get out and do things in the community. There doesn't, there is no evidence that she does anything. And I guess I wonder what she does. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't need to do any paid work because work around, work around the house, housework, will all be taken care of, won't it? So she won't need to do anything. She might need to organise it, but no, that's not going to take up a whole day. No, and she has <laughs> one of her religious cronies, I think, hanging around to... Or did do. I don't know if they're still there. anymore because there's a bit of controversy around there was, that. Yeah, there was. Her having a companion, why did she need to have a companion? Perhaps she could have got out and done something. Mm. I don't know. There is a 60 Minutes show coming up tonight. I don't know if we're going to watch it or not, which is an, an at home with Jen and the girls. And, and uh, that, <laughs> they continue to play him playing the, guitar, the, the ukulele. ukulele. And uh, some comment about that today as well, because the inference was Hawaii, you know, and why would you <coughs> play, you know, which is kind of uh, you associate, I guess, or some people associate anyway, the ukulele with and Hawaii-type tradition, and so why would he revisit the catastrophe that was being in Hawaii while Australia was burning? 
that was the issue. It is interesting, and there is there already are some memes with fires in the background and him in the foreground. Instead of being in Hawaii, he's now playing the ukulele. <laughs> and and someone's adopted adapted some different words, I think, to <laughs> what he was supposed to be playing. And and someone commented today on Insiders that the girls, his daughters, looked totally embarrassed by this man playing the ukulele. And I know what that's like because our kids feel often embarrassed about <laughs> us. Yeah, so, yeah, that's... Not that, uncommon. That's entirely, no, that's entirely normal. But the ukulele, to me, I have never associated... Interestingly enough, I've never associated it with, ha- with Hawaii, but with hillbilly, sort of. Mm, which, well, uh, that probably well, fits. That's probably <laughs> He's not a sophisticated man, Scott Morrison, is he? No, no. But I don't know whether a sophisticated man really should be doing... Well... Yep, I don't yeah, know. I think so. Yeah. A bit more sophisticated. Yeah, sophisticated in what way? Oh, a bit tuned into the rest of the world. Oh, that is going. not. He's well, not. tuned into the public. He doesn't understand what's happening out there. At least he I wasn't washing hair this week. We talked about that last week. Wasn't well, <laughs> oh, this no, week no, he's no, playing the week. ukulele. This week's, yep. So heaven only knows what he'll be doing next week. Um, trying to <laughs> trying desperately to appeal to the public so that he can pick up the votes that he's probably likely to lose at the next federal election. I but he think. was conspicuously absent from the press, National Press Club. Uh, that was Wednesday, wasn't it? Yeah. When Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins were speaking to the National Press Club. Mm. Anthony Albanese was there. So was Anne Rushton, the Minister for S- mm-hmm. Social Services, who looked miserable. She looked as if she'd prefer not to be there, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and and uh, Peter Van Onselen was conspicuous by his absence as well, as were a lot of men. There were the the show with the audience was largely comprised of women, and that was a point that was raised by one of the journos asking. Yeah, because I think there's only questions. one male that asked a question, the, and all yes. the rest were female journalists. Yes. So I wonder what that tells us. Well, the issue that was raised is, uh, I think Laura Tingle said, you know, this is a male problem. The way that yes, men was treat yeah. yes men treat women so why aren't the men here do they still think it's a woman's problem and but there again if there was if there was an equal balance of men and women would someone complain that you know why were the men there in the first place they shouldn't have been there it was a woman's event they should be listening yeah yeah, absolutely and perhaps they were well perhaps they're listening elsewhere i was yeah, and, and yeah. Scotty might have been listening while he was playing his ukulele. ukulele who knows? Um, <laughs> and singing to his children and embarrassing the daylights out of them. Absolutely. But it was a great, I thought it was a great event, the press club, because it did give these two wonderful women an opportunity to talk about their issues. And I thought Grace was um, not very graceful, but that's Grace. <laughs> I thought it was excellent. And I loved. Yeah, both of them were fabulous. They both raised really interesting and valid points. They have sparked an enormous conversation across the country. I loved Grace's obvious fury. She was furious and Mm. she wasn't going to resile from that. And it's interesting the conversation that sparked because there is some conservative woman doing the rounds on Twitter saying how, how bitter and twisted... Grace Tame is, and Virginia Travoli responded, I guess, to a general conversation about how women are uncomfortable with the anger that Grace displays because we're conditioned to not be angry. And I know we've talked about that a yeah, couple we, of weeks ago. Yeah, we even talked about it last week, I think, where we talked about hysteria and the fact that you know women are hysterical and I don't know what men are. Men are forthright. 
I don't know. You know, and why can't women be as uh, express their anger appropriately by talking about it? Is it this notion that we just don't talk about our feelings or we, or that women themselves are expected to be silent, quiet and sitting in the background doing their knitting or crocheting? I think the thing is that it's okay for women to be sad and it's not okay for men to be sad still, even though that's changed a lot since Bob Hawke cried all those years ago. Uh, and it, But it's not okay for women to be angry, but it is okay for men to express their anger. Mm, mm. And we see that in Parliament all the time. You know, I, did you see Question Time this week? I missed it, but I heard a lot of stories about him being a little bit hysterical himself, actually, getting a bit troppo. Well, him being Morrison. Morrison, yeah, and uh, and Dutton making stupid claims, and even Frydenberg. So that so it's perfectly okay well, they, for I those men is, to be angry. I think the point is that men lose it a lot. But as it's seen as kind of okay, whereas if a woman loses it, um, like uh, Tasmanian senator, what's her name? Jackie Lambie. Jackie Lambie. When Jackie Lambie's classic bit, where Jackie went right off about telling everybody to be fucking re- to be responsible, and uh, and it was a great bit. But I, but Jackie didn't get slammed for that. Funnily enough, no, isn't that so interesting? Because is it because she's a politician? I don't I don't know. Or is it because that's what they expect from that's this, they expect from Jackie? And Jackie could do whatever she likes in Parliament, whereas someone like Grace Tame sits who outside was, of Parliament. Who was angry? She was furious. She was enraged. But it was entirely controlled. And Jackie was telling people off, like she was telling her fellow politicians they need to take responsibility for their behaviour, which is, I think, none of us would disagree with, um, and was extremely angry at the same time. Uh, but Grace, for some particular reason, um, you know, what is it? Is it because she's a young woman? Is it because she's attractive? Is it, you know, like, what is the reason why... She's disobeying the social rules, which, yeah, yeah, where she's yeah. not she's supposed, supposed to be. To, well, she was given this wonderful privilege of being Australian of the Year, so... You know, I guess you've got to be compliant and agreeable if you've given that sort of honour, maybe. Perhaps. And that was the discussion, part of the discussion on Q&A this week. And I think Virginia Trioli was was, um, hosting that. And I think she did make a a comment that there has been a change now so that if you are Australian of the Year, you do have a platform for talking about your issues, so it's not just an honour, but mm. you can go out and talk about um, what's been what's been happening. And there was an interesting discussion on that because Rosie Batty even admitted to being uncomfortable, to feeling uncomfortable about Grace Tame's anger, particularly in terms of the Australia Day event. So, is there a sort of a standard that one is expected to abide by? If you are provided with that sort of nomination, um, and if you, you know, like, is there a rule book? Is there <laughs> something that says that? Um, I have no idea because I haven't been you haven't, close. You to haven't got that, that yet. No. That honour is to come. No. Look forward to it. <laughs> but you, remember, you and I had a discussion about how you know if these were our daughters, thinking of Brittany Higgins and Grace James, of how proud we'd be of Absolutely. them. Absolutely. And absolutely that's true. But I also remember feeling that I'd be worried for them, that they would be attacked from all sides as well. And and someone like Grace clearly... I mean, she mentioned in her speech how she'd been attacked. Yes. Uh, and she gets attacked over and over again. And one wonders what that does to your mental well-being too, being in that position and having all sorts of people of authority 
having a go at you. And clearly, she's had some uncomfortable conversations with Scott Morrison as well. She avoided those questions when she was asked at the press club. And and I think that it was probably a smart move to make because otherwise she would have been attacked again and again and again. So being attacked tends to silence one person or a person. It can do it. And I, I guess if you go I guess the thing is though, that if you you would have to be fairly naive to go into the political arena or into the public and not and be surprised if you were criticized <laughs> because isn't that what happens to everybody? You know, well, if you're Prime Minister, you've basically got half the country yelling at you all the time. So these, you are have people, to these are people that choose to be. I wouldn't suggest that neither Grace Tain nor Brittany Higgins chose to be the people that they wound up having to be. They chose to speak in public, though. Both of them did. It was a conscious decision. Agreed. But they, they, they didn't... There's a vast difference, I think, between someone who chooses to be a politician and speak for the issues that they think are important <coughs> versus someone that's thrust into the, to- into the spotlight simply because they've had a horrific event happen to them, you know? And, uh, and yes. these, these women uh, have, I, in my view, have risen to the occasion above and beyond where they, where they could have been. They could have been a little bit more quieter, more silent, but they've chosen regardless of the pressure placed upon them, they've chosen not to be. And they need to be yeah. commended for that. I get, and I guess I get that distinction. If you go into politics, you know damn well you're going to be attacked mm. by the opposition. And there's a, a very big story going in the United Kingdom at the moment of Boris John- Johnson having a go at Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, for his role in the in the equivalent of our DPP, their, their CPS, in not charging... Jimmy Sample with child sexual abuse cases, mm. and that he was criti- and Boris Johnson was roundly criticised for that this week, because apparently he went over the top. You know, so th- there is some expectation of that hustle and bustle, and criticism and backwards and forwards and attack if you're in politics. But Boris Johnson apparently even went too far in this instance. Yeah, but, yeah, I still think if you go into public life, expect to be criticised. Oh, well, that's, that's true. I'm just saying there is a distinct difference between making a conscious choice that that's where you want to go and then f- as opposed to finding yourself thrust into the public t- uh, spotlight because of events that cause you to be there. Mm. You know, I mean, and, uh, I agree. People like uh, these two women could have chosen to have said nothing. But what would be the power and the oh, benefit of that? Zero. And they've had an enormous impact. They have. They on, have. And the same the, with Rosie Batty. Yes. You know, and the same with now, um, what's the name, Alcock? Dylan Alcock. Dylan Alcock, yeah. yeah. The, the he's going to be hard to keep quiet. He is. He is fa- he's a fabulous <laughs> young man, isn't he? And the fact he's that delightful. Choosing, the fact that they're choosing these younger people, I mean, the last two anyway, you know, he and uh, Grace, that... Uh, you know, it says a lot more about the selection process, I think, than it ever has before. And remember <coughs> also that this selection process is supposed to be completely independent yes. of the government. So, you know, you could have Scott Morrison on one hand sitting, I don't want this person. <laughs> I don't, Who's this Grace Tame? She's just a big mouth. I don't want her there. And him not able to do anything about it because the process is completely independent of him. Yes. 
Thank yes, God. Yes, that, I thank goodness Otherwise, that is. Thank God that's an interesting expression. What? Thank God. Well, someone has to. <laughs> uh, I mean, I always, I always like to thank things that are not there. <laughs> Given what else happened this week around the well, that, religious that's a freedom, good segue, the religious, isn't it? it is a it's very a, good segue yeah, into that conversation. Yeah. Right. Tell us about the religious discrimination bill, because I've got no friggin' idea what it is. Well, as I understand it, there's two components to it. It is all very confusing. It's been on the agenda since Morrison got into government. So 2019? Oh, that seems like such a long time ago. And as I, as I understand it, there was concern by the Australian Christian lobby and I guess other um, people, religious people in the community, after the same-sex referendum, what do we call it, plebiscite, happened and the anti-same-sex marriage members of the community lost that argument and same-sex marriage is now legalised. And because they lost that argument, the argument goes that because they lost that, they felt as if there was some diminution, I guess, of their power and concern and they wanted that back. <laughs> a, de a demon who? Diminution. All right. Could you use language that myself and other people at least can understand? Well, a, a shrinking of their power. All right. Um, I, like so the, I like the fact that we're talking about racial discrimination. You brought demons into it. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. I. D-I. No demon. The diminution. Yeah, diminution. Oh, right. Okay. Thank <laughs> God we cleared that up. <laughs> demons. No demons. I thought demonusions. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so as I get it, the Australian Christian Lobby and probably lots of other people, but in, in principle I think the Australian Christian Lobby were a bit up in arms at the shrinking of their power base in the community. They had lost a massive referendum. So their ideas that people of the same sex should not be in sexual relationships or should not be married was out the window now because that was now made legal in Australia. And there's a whole history to that which we won't go into and the sneaky thing that John Howard did back in 2004, but we'll forget about that for the time being. Anyway, so they were up in arms and uh, Scott Morrison wanted their vote, so he says, well, we'll do something about that if I get into power and we'll have this religious discrimination bill. And it went out for several, con con, um, several consultations in the community. And as I understand it, there were two components to it. One I absolutely agree with, that people shouldn't be discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. I totally agree with that. The other one, part of it was a lot more difficult because it seemed to be giving religious groups the freedom to discriminate against people who didn't believe their beliefs. So if you went into, and there was a big furor, of course, over the last week over a couple of schools who, who believe that sexuality should be limited to between a male and a female and they didn't and, and this and similarly with gender they didn't want to include trans they don't believe that people should be um, I guess um, going against gender you know mainstream conservative gender ideals either so they were against transgendered people so because of so because so therefore, the bill seemed to suggest that 
we're not going to discriminate against them because they're the religion. Fair enough. But they're free to discriminate against people who don't fit with their beliefs, mm. which is not on in my book. No, no. And you've got a great book. And I... <laughs> and that, uh, I think the confusing thing for me was that they... Uh, the what? What do we need the? What do we need this anyway? Surely there must be legislation around just discrimination. You know, you can't discriminate against a person's uh, racial background. You can't discriminate against a person because of their sex. Sex discrimination laws, um, and uh, you know, there's a whole lot of other sort of. Rights, Never I guess, anything rights about social class, though, I don't think. I don't think there's any specific legislation to stop people... But if Morrison hadn't... My point is, though, that if Morrison... If it, this wasn't driven by Morrison, would it even be on the agenda? It would not be on the agenda, no. So why are we doing it? What's his agenda? His agenda is because he's some sort of Pentecostal happy clapper that uh, this is important to, to him and his the religious right. Is this what this is really all about? It seems to be, but also... Really, late, it doesn't deserve to pass. If that's the case... And it, it didn't, and that was good. Yeah, that's right. And I, I get a bit cross with Labor because they just don't agree with me all the time. And they and I thought they should have just said, no, we don't agree with this bill full stop. you were running the government. Absolutely. What a difference yeah. <laughs> that would make. But as I understand it, there are plenty of people, religious people within the Labor Party or who vote for Labor Party representatives who did agree with the legislation, certainly that first bit. And I do remember listening to Jason Clare, a, a Labor Party representative, who said in his community there are many Muslim women who go outside with a hijab on and they get discriminated mm. against. And so I totally agree that they shouldn't, that they shouldn't be, and I'm aware that that does happen. But um, shouldn't that in itself be legislated against? Uh, and well, it probably is legislated against in terms of discrimination acts and other things. Um, so maybe would it make a difference if we had a Bill of Rights? I think it probably will, yeah, mm. make a difference. So maybe we need a Bill of Rights. We need to do something. I mean, it's all been squashed now and I'm delighted for that. It was a terrible week if you were a transgender person yeah. because really you're being battered around the parliament. Yeah. Well, they were, they were differentiating between... Uh, so if you're an adult and you're in a school and you didn't want to work with gay people, for example, then as um, then maybe as an adult, that's kind of your right, I guess, to make that decision. But if you're a child, then you don't have the ability or even the rights in this society to make to make choices about complicated issues or involved issues such as you know a person's sexuality or whether they're trans or whatever. So there are these two delineating aspects of this, I think. One is about, you know, I'm a teacher. I can, you know, I can choose who I want to work with in my workplace and uh, students who probably don't have that choice. And it was in the area of the students in particular, I think, that the controversy arose um, because then you're, you know, trans kids or kids trying to work out their gender or their sexual orientation were in, would be in conflict because they wouldn't feel safe to be able to do so in those environments. Totally. And there were some moving conversations or speeches, I guess, by Stephen Jones, a, uh, a Labor Party MP, talking about 
his 15-year-old nephew who killed himself last year and his son mm. who's mm. who's gay and but also wears dresses and is is trans I guess and experimenting with and why wouldn't we why I guess I'm sitting here thinking I'm a little bit confused because isn't the idea in the Judeo-Christian tradition anyway, the idea that we're all in the image and likeness of God? Oh, that is an old notion. That that no <coughs> that notion's about two thousand, four thousand years. It's Six been, thousand years old. Whatever it's been watered <laughs> it's been watered watered down. I mean, is that, it only when it suits whoever's running? Was, that idea was around at the moment we were created 6000 years ago <laughs> well i do get i do get really confused and i tend to agree with people who say you know it's the idea of proof texting people take stuff out of the bible to suit their argument yeah. or their prejudice as or, or, or whatever is is yeah, going yeah. on yeah yeah it's very confusing what happened very to, i often wonder whatever happened to love thy neighbor or turn the other cheek or give unto others as you'd like to have them, or do unto others as you'd like to have them do unto you. You know what happened to those, what, those well, really nice sort of moral versions of who we are. What there was a really nice classic one this week that went around on Twitter, which was "Suffer thy little children," Jesus said. But I never heard him or saw written that you don't suffer the trans children or the gay children. You know, he didn't. Yeah, so who's defining who are children it's, and yeah, what yeah. children should be like? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So. So I'm relieved. Oh, that was a heavy. That was a that heavy, was heavy religious duty. discussion. <laughs> That's about as heavy as our religious discussions ever get, wasn't it? It is, yes. I'm I'm relieved that it's gone. I understand now why the ALP had to play their politics in the way that they did because they did have to uh, say to their constituents, "Hey, listen, we're on your side about you know not discriminating against religious people." But they didn't get need to all say it at all. They didn't even need this to be an issue. They in my shut view, up. in my and view, it should never have become an issue. That's right. So they kind of, I think, they've kind of shot themselves in the foot. Who the ALP they, or the no, no, the the Morrison and his crew of cronies, because they they chose to bring up an issue which in turn becomes um, uh, of interest to most of us. Um, it's very divisive. It's a, yes, that's it. Thanks. It's a divisive issue. You know, don't people know that in politics you should not raise divisive issues because you could find yourself on the wrong side of that issue? So let's not raise it at all. They have. It's created a conversation which is, I think, unhelpful to them, to the Liberal Party and the Conservatives, um, and they should have just freaking shut up, shut up in the first place. There is concern that it was also very unhelpful to trans people in the community as well, sort of, of being battered around in that conversation. I'm glad that it had the end result that it did, but in the meantime, that's taking a battering, as gay people did during the plebiscite as well. But this comes about because Morrison does not listen to what's happening out there. He doesn't seem to understand the nuances of his own community, the Australian community... The, the the massive um, multicultural setting in which we all live. Um, you know, well, Dutton set doesn't seem to understand that because he keeps on having to go at the Chinese. But don't we have Chinese Australians? One and a half million of them. Exactly. So apparently, what's he going on about? Oh, he's a dick. What can I say? Now, I do want to come to another topic though. Mm-hmm. This topic has been concerning me and will concern our podcast listeners for many many years to come. 
the Founding Museum. <laughs> Do you remember when we visited the Founding Museum? It was way, way back in 2019, which was the last time we travelled anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> really. that's true. Even outside, outside of our home. Outside of... for me. So we went to... Yes, that's right. We went to the Netherlands to catch up with family there. And then we went to the United Kingdom and went to a fabulous Care Experience conference but before that, we met with uh, a friend and a colleague at the Foundling Museum in London. And this week, I was thinking about the Foundling Museum from the po point of view of a bloke called Tom McKenzie, who grew up in the Foundling Museum. He was born in 1939. His mother at the time was unmarried and was concerned about the stigma around being an unmarried mother at a very Christian-dominant time, <laughs> I should point out. And she was advised, it was suggested to her that a good place to go would be the Foundling Museum. So she had to go and have an interview with these white men who ran the place, this, the governors, eight of them. I can't imagine how Can scary that would be. I just to anybody be. listening to this podcast now, please don't turn off now. This is a really interesting <laughs> conversation. You're having a go at me. No, 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 because we've gone from politics and other stuff to, which is, this is an or important conversation. Is, yes, yes. But it's historically it's, based. It's, it's, and, yes, yeah. So yeah. Well, it had threads. Don't turn off. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That, um, yeah, so 1939, stigma around being a single mother. She decides, his mother, Jean, decides to relinquish her son, who's only nine weeks old, to the Foundling, Foundling Hospital, it was called. And that was founded in around about 1739. So it was a couple of hundred years old at the time that... I was going to say Tom, but it wasn't Tom who was placed in the Foundling Hospital. It was... Derek Craig, and he was nine weeks old. And then he was immediately, his name was changed to Tom Humphreys because that's what the Foundling Museum did. They effectively stripped the babies who went in there of all of their identity. None of them had any connections to their birth families once they went in there. They would, mums would be encouraged to leave a little token, but it was removed from the baby. There might be a record kept of that and the tokens kept, but it was removed from the baby, so the baby didn't have any anything to do with that and the, all their clothes or whatever that they went with were removed and they were replaced with foundling clothes. I wanted to make two points. He went off to foster care. What they did then was... Can I just say, was that just them stripping them of their identity, yes. do you think? They strip them totally right. of their identity. I just identity. need to say that a lot of this stuff that you talk about, which is, I think is vitally important, is connected with to today. Well, and think about... Isn't it? Yeah, think about that yeah. bit of my identity that was stripped or those couple of aspects of it with, that we talked yeah, about absolutely. right at the beginning, where, they, where that seemed to be more careless, I guess, than a deliberate action to strip identity, which is what the founding hospital was doing. They would, uh, this was deliberate. And so little Tom Humphreys then goes into foster. There's a, there's a really poignant scene for me. A couple of points I might have wanted to make, but I did want to talk about this poignant scene. He goes into foster care for five years, and that was standard. They'd farm out these babies, send them into a foster care or this sort of wet nursing arrangement. What year are we talking about? We're talking here? about 1939, and this had been oh. going on for 200 years. So when was the Foundling Museum established? 
in the 1700s. Oh, okay, kept in perspective. So yep. it's been around for a long time. Yeah, well, it's not around anymore. No, but it was up but until... But it was for a couple of hundred yep. years. So yep. this is what they did. And it would take in another whole, whole podcast to tell you the whole history. I'm not going to do that. I'll just tell you Tom's story. And at the age of five... He go and he's very happy in his foster care placement for at least four years until his foster dad dies and another bloke eventually moves into the home and he's not a very nice man. But but still, this was Tom's home and the only family that he knew. He'd been there since he was about nine weeks old. So Elsie, his mum, buys him a new little outfit. They get on a coach with other mums and children and they go back to the foundling hospital and they all go into this huge room and get talked down to probably and told about, you know, the Christian ethos of the place and how they, you know, the importance of obeying rules. And then the women are invited to leave, at which point all the children cry and lots of the mums do as well. And then this little child, he's got this new outfit that mum's just brought him, that is removed from him. And he brought along a white fluffy, you know how kids have little pet toys? He had a white fluffy rabbit, that was removed. So again, he was stripped of any anything, any connection with that foster family and placed back in this um, institution. And he talks about this being such an, an impactful moment that even years later when he caught up with other former foundlings, that they remembered that too as a moment when kind of love died really, that the love that experienced in their foster ham, foster families disappeared and it seemed like people didn't really care about their emotional well-being whatsoever. So why were they returned back to these the, the foundling hospital? I don't get it. They were then trained being basically, as I understand it, they were then, tra- it's not like the foster families were paid for their for their caring work, and as I understand it, many of those foster families would have been quite happy to keep the children on, but they brought the children back, gave them minimal education. The boys were dressed in little military um, uniforms as if they were headed for the military afterwards. That was kind of their destination. And the girls would be dressed in long dresses with aprons on, so they looked like miniature domestic servants. So we kind of get an understanding of the destination of these children. They're not going to be going to Eton and then running Parliament. But this was 1939, this wasn't This is it 1939. It does sound about. like something from the... It's from 1739. And it was still going on. Things changed in 1946 because a report came out from the government called the Curtis Report and everything, Tom writes about how everything changed then. They changed, they improved the education system. They stopped the nighttime hazing. He he said it was horrible. It it was just terrible at night times because the older boys would bully the younger boys and the masters just turned a blind eye. Plus the masters themselves were very strict discipline. Uh, So they'd have this sort of Friday humiliating event. If you'd done anything wrong during the week, then you would be on stage and being beaten. And all of that kind of got got changed after 1946. And it wasn't long after that when there was a push for foster care and away from these huge institutions. And so, as I understand it, the Foundling Hospital kind of wound down about five years afterwards anyway, um, after that report, so in the 1950s. But anyway... 
I might be getting my dates wrong. Young Tom. So that I wanted to talk about that poignant moment of those children being abandoned then by their foster mothers, which the foster mothers, I guess, always knew that was going to happen, but the children didn't know and didn't understand anyway. So that was and how powerful that moment was for him. It was a really important moment. He re, he really remembered that. The other point that I wanted to make was that he was uh, writing this story when he was about 73 and I really liked the fact that he wrote his memoir and then he self-published it and he wasn't getting much. He was a bit disappointed with the whole self-publishing process and his son said to him, well, you need to do a bit of promotion, Dad, and get it out there a bit. So he decided he would start... A blog. So he did. Tw- so he got onto Twitter, and he started writing a blog. And then he lives in Plymouth, in England, and runs a local business there, as I understand it, it and still was when he was seventy-three. So this is back in two thousand and twelve, and he got picked up by the local paper, the Plymouth Herald, and given an opportunity to write a column, which was which was fantastic. So in his seventies, he had this new career as a as a writer, and then somebody noticed. The, his story about being the last foundling, or in amongst those last foundlings that were taken into the into the foundling hospital, and because of the fame of the foundling hospital, publishers started looking at this. So he ended up with four publishers who were very interested. They did a bidding war, in effect, and he ended up published by Pan Macmillan, which is a very respectable publisher. And so good. I thought that was just a fantastic story. That even though, so I might not have heard of that his book at all had it not gone through that process of him being willing to write blogs and being picked up by the local newspaper and then being picked picked up by a major publisher. So I really like that story. <coughs> so do you, so do you do you think we might get picked up by uh, a major distributor no. of podcasts? <laughs> But one little thing I wanted to talk about that's been bothering me, and I have tried to Tom, write to Tom, but he's not contacted me. Something that's been bothering me is that when he was 20, he found his mum. Because she'd relinquished him, she weirdly had to adopt him. So then he changed his name to Tom McKenzie from Tom Humphreys. He kept the Tom the Humphreys as a middle name, but went to McKenzie because that was her married name at the time. And he found out, so he was 20 years of age, and he found out that his maternal grandmother had been sending gifts and birthday cards while he was in the foundling hospital, but he never knew anything about that. Mm. And that really bothered me. And when he was 16, he was in trouble with the law because he had broken into a photographics shop and stolen some stuff. And the foundling museum, sorry, the hospital, the foundling hospital did the right thing, I think, they stood by him, they went and they compensated the shop for the equipment that he'd stolen so that he then didn't have any negative consequences or have to go into juvie or anything. But then at 20, at the time that Tom found out about these gifts that he never received, he also found out that the cost of recompensing that shop actually came out of money that his mother, his grandmother had sent the hospital for it to be given to him when he was 21. But it was as if they were pretending that they were giving it out of their own funds. Mm. And I was very disturbed by that behaviour, I guess, on the part of this respectable institution. Were they stealing? Well, they, they, if, the, uh, if, if it was not intended for um, 
it was not intended for them to use apart from uh, his, I, I guess, his use, his personal use. Well, it wasn't exactly his personal use, was it? However, it did help to get him out of the crap. But Absolutely, then why, but why, they, why didn't they, they tell him? Well, why couldn't they just use their own money anyway? Why was that such a big deal? Yeah, yeah, true. But 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 he was he was very distressed. He said because his grandmother had died six weeks before he found his mum. So, and he, so he never knew about any of this, and he was distressed because he was never able to say thank you. Did did he get any money? Do you know as a result of the gift? I from don't his know. Grandmother? I have written to him. I've not had a response. I don't know whether he ever got any apology or compensation. What happened to the toys? Did they just go into the bank of toys that were, you know, the mm. gifts? Mm. But but it it did, it did seem because that a lot of that stuff resonates with really the way the department responds to families today, where um, you know I've known of families where they've been told not to bring gifts for the kids. The kids have enough gifts, that sort of stuff. Forget about the fact that this gift is supposed to be from the parent to the child, may have specific significance for the child. None of that seems to matter. Um, you know, don't bring in... You know, they see some parents see the kids coming in some terrible clothing, so they buy better clothing for the child because clearly the child's not being cared for as it should be, and yet that clothing, never they never see that clothing again, so you never know where the kid turns out the following week in same messy, shitty clothing. Um, so it se often seems to me that some of the stories that you come up with that delve back not just 60 years but hundreds of years means that the system is still a crappy system that still has not ostensibly changed. I ended up concluding that upper-class people shouldn't have anything to do with welfare systems because they'll just run things to suit themselves. Well, that's because they, uh, they're charity-minded, aren't they? Like, you know, like it was... Uh, the middle class and the upper class that didn't necessarily get involved in caring for kids that were homeless or whatever, or they thought that they but could they, provide but them with a better environment. But don't they think they know the best way to do things? Well, they which no, sorry, to me, know that they think they well, don't know. they think they know how to do things. That's my point, and there's there's a level of arrogance there. Like the people running this hospital knew the children were upset when their foster parents mm. left. Mm. They could see it. Well, when we were having this discussion earlier in the week, I, I mentioned that uh, there are lots of kids who are extremely distressed when their parents leave them uh, after access. And, the, and there is never a record, well, not never, I should never say that, but there is there's unlikely to be a record of how this child has responded. And usually, because the child is upset about the, about the access finishing, for some reason, it's always the parent's fault as to why this happens. You know, because the parent somehow has upset the child. Not that the child simply misses the parent and would like to be with the parent as opposed to in the foster care or resi care centre. So, yeah, I think these issues still long standing, aren't yeah, they? Still there. It's really sad. Really, really sad. Well, Which it's so sad to finish on a sad note. <laughs> However, it does kind of go back to that conversation about religious freedom because remember, I talked about this was a very Christian organisation. Yep. And yet some of their behaviour was well, not yeah. ideal. And those Christian organisations like Anglicare and Baptist and the Roman Catholics are still the major NGOs in the in the child protection space anyway. They're in still doing it. Interestingly they're enough. Doing any better. Sorry? Interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, that was a broad brush conversation about a whole host of things. From, from last week back to the 1700s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is interesting, the stuff around the founding 
uh, hospital, I think, too. And well, I don't remember there. getting any of that sort of flavour when we were there of contrition or that they might have done the wrong thing in the museum. They seemed more... Well, even those tokens, the token thing, you know, like the parent would give a token which would be given back to the child. Clearly, a lot, and I think you mentioned that those tokens were not necessarily given back they to the child. They weren't given to the child. Because they were never reunited with their parent. No, they weren't expected to be. So I think the yeah. token was given by the parent and then there were records of it, as I understand it. Yeah. So the parent's name would be written and the, there'd be the token kept or whatever. But the child didn't know that. No. No. So there was a means by which the, ch- the parent could be identified with yes, the child. Yes, if they it? wanted to go collect that child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But f- from the child's point of view, they had nothing from their mother and it must have felt like mum didn't give us didn't stuff. Care. Yeah. yeah, which we know is not true then and now. Not always, anyway. Yeah. So I'd like to thank everybody for being with us today on Conversations Over Coffee with Dee and Tony. And please follow us on wherever you're listening to your podcast. Thanks, everybody. Take care and be safe. <laughs>